You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Vanguards of Healthcare podcast series. My name is Matt Henriksen, the Medical Technology Analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, which is the in-house equity research platform of Bloomberg. We are pleased to have with us today Nadim Yarev, CEO of CVRX, a medical device company that is driving the innovation of Baroflex Activation Therapy, or BAT for short to help improve heart failure symptoms for patients. You can dive deeper into the financials by typing in CVRX Equity Go on your Bloomberg terminal. Nadim, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Matt. My pleasure. Well, let's let's start off with the path that led you to uh, CVRX. Um, you became CEO in 2006 after several years at Medtronic, um, where you were the general manager of its uh, integrated image guiding surgical products. So wh- why did you decide to make the jump from a large diversified company uh, to a small startup? And how have those experiences shaped your management and stri- strategy priorities uh, at CVRX? Yeah, so when I was at Medtronic, I ran the imaging business of Medtronic at the time as a startup within a large company with, you know, large balance sheets, but we ran it as a separate, very small company with very fast-paced culture. Uh, It was super exciting. Prior to that, when I was at General Electric, I did the same thing with the surgical C-arm business. We acquired the business based in Salt Lake City. I moved my family from Paris to Salt Lake City and again, ran it, continued running it like a startup. I enjoy this fast-paced, innovative approach where we take risks and we change the world. And it was a natural progression for me to run my own company at one moment in time. And that opportunity showed up in 2006 when I was uh, approached by the group of investors who... uh, were backing CVRX. And when they shared with me what they were doing at CVRX, I got super excited. I threw my name in the hat and I fought like crazy to get the job. Well, that, that's that's great. And so, but 
you know, one of the transitions you went, you went from kind of imaging to um, heart failure. Uh, and so let's just, you know, let's give a broad overview of what the health heart failure market looks like. Um, how many patients suffer from this disease and, you know, how, how are they currently or traditionally being treated? Heart failure is a poorly understood disease. Uh, It affects about 6 million adults in the United States, more than 26 million worldwide. Um, And uh, it is poorly understood because I think of the terminology. You say it's heart failure. Okay, so what? It's failing over time. I can't do anything about it. Unlike, for example, heart attack, when you feel like I am attacked, I have to defend myself. Here is heart failure, that passive description. But in fact, the disease is very morbid. Um, you know, half of the patients, unfortunately, would lose their life within five years after being diagnosed with heart failure. Patients suffering from heart failure will see their hearts becoming larger and larger over time. The walls of the heart become thinner and thinner, and the heart loses its ability to pump blood and oxygenate the body. And that's a gradual disease Uh, Often there are episodes where the patient's lungs fill with fluid. They end up in the hospital. Symptomatically speaking, patients suffer a lot from it. You know, they lose the energy. They lose the ability to walk even to their mailbox or shower. It, 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 it It is a difficult disease for the patients and for their family. What is the current treatment uh, therapies for heart failure right now? The good news is there are four classes of medications and the guidelines that work very well in prolonging the life of the patients and keeping them out of the hospital. And again, when I say statements like this, people and particularly patients should understand it's not 100%. Uh, the last drug uh, showed a 20% reduction in mortality or heart failure hospitalizations. It's not 100%, right? So anything is relative, but still major progress. Unfortunately, none of those drugs provide symptomatic relief to the patients or an improvement of functional capacity to the extent that patients need. So they still are looking for other solutions, and that's where we come into play. Okay, so those those solutions, those patients that need those solutions, are we able to quantify how many patients there are in the U.S. or in worldwide? For our solution, we estimated that there are 55,000 new patients every year. So that's an incidence rate model. So every year, 55,000 patients are added to the pool mm-hmm. that meet our uh, FDA eligibility criteria. So our product received an FDA approval with specific uh, patient eligibility criteria and according to those eligibility criteria. And we added a little bit more restrictions just to make sure that we're only counting patients who have access to healthcare, who are located near a major hospital or institution that can, you know, implant an active implantable device. Patients who have access to insurance, you know, whether it's Medicare or private insurance and so forth. we estimate it to be 55,000 new patients every year. So it's only 4% of the entire heart failure population. Okay. But if, I mean, if I'm doing my math right, that, that comes to you know, over a billion dollar market opportunity for just those new patients coming in every, every year. Absolutely. F- financially speaking for the company, uh, 55,000 multiplied by even a conservative average selling price of $25,000 per device translates into $1.4 billion annual market potential in the U.S. alone. 
And on top of this, uh, the patients after six years usually would require, if they're still alive and still benefiting from the therapy, would require another implantable pulse generator. So that's another $25,000. So that will be additive to the $1.4 billion. So we're talking about a, a market potential, even with those restrictions, to be north of $1 billion a year in the U.S. alone. Okay, and then yeah, let's let's dive in. We you know Barrow Reflex Activation Therapy or BAT, a relatively new technology. Um, it's within a product lines that is kind of an alphabet soup between ICDs, CRTs. You got BAT, CCMs. So, could you just start with the listeners, or help the listeners understand um, what BAT does and how that maybe differs from the rest of the alphabet soup? Yeah, sure. Uh, that's a difficult question, by the way, because, yeah, that's an alphabet soup. Let me start with the alphabet soup first, Matt, all right? Okay. Uh, pacemakers, I think everybody knows about pacemakers. They are battery-operated implantable generators inserted inside the body with a wire that goes inside the heart that restores the rhythm of the heart. And usually patients have either a very slow rhythm or a very high rhythm, and they use pacemaker to restore the rhythm. We're not talking about pacemakers in here for heart failure. We're talking about a family of other products that look like a pacemaker but have different function. The first one is ICD, implantable cardio defibrillator. It's like a, a large pacemaker with one exception. It delivers a high voltage, high energy to shock the heart to restart. I'm sure you've seen in movies where they put those pads outside the chest and boom, they shock the patients when they have a heart attack. Oh, right? when they go like clear and yeah. 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 You know, yeah. So okay. it's the same thing, but done inside the heart. So the implantable pulse generator is in the chest outside the heart, connected to wires. Those wires goes and screwed on inside the heart on the wall of the heart. And if this device senses that the heart stops, it shocks it to restart. And the shock, it felt like a, you know, a horse kick in the chest. It's really difficult for the patients, but many patients survive that shock and continue to live a good life. So this is needed, the ICD, when the patient's heart stops, the sudden cardiac death or th- sudden cardiac arrest. Heart failure patients have some episodes of sudden cardiac arrest, so they are eligible to receiving an ICD. In the guidelines, if a patient has a reduced ejection fraction, they should be considered for an ICD. All right. The second one is CRT, often coming as a CRT slash D, cardiac resynchronization therapy, also known as biventricular pacing. It's like a pacemaker, except it changes the rhythm of the two sides of the heart, the left and the right, and it resynchronizes the left and the right side. As the heart's becoming larger in patients with heart failure, sometimes the enlargement happens only on one side of the heart. So the electrical current going through the left and the right side of the heart now takes longer in one side. So now there is a delay in the contraction between the left side and the right side. A CRT device restores that delay by forcing the heart to contract at a specific moment in time. That's why they called resynchronization therapy. They are effective when the heart is enlarged on one side or when there is a dyssynchrony between the left and the right side, meaning when they're not beating in harmony. Often a CRT is combined with a CICD to become a CRTD. So it's a cardiac resynchronization therapy with a, with a defibrillator. Finally, CCM is a new modality that was introduced a few years ago. Uh, it's called cardiac contractility modulation. 
They use a pacemaker-like technology to send electricity inside the heart, to modify the characteristics of the cells of the heart, to allow the heart to contract with more vigor, to push the blood out. That's why it's called contractility modulation. It is approved currently uh, for patients with EF between 25 to 45%. And often it's used between EF of 35 to 45%. So our, the overlap between the cardiac contractility modulation therapy and our device is very small. That's why we see them often to be synergistic as two modalities. Okay. And for the, just for the listeners at home, um, EF stands for ejection fraction, right? Thank of you. the yes. amount of blood that's pumped out of the heart. Per each yeah. Pump, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sometimes uh, doctors will simplify this to patients and say it's the fraction or percent of the heart that you're able to recruit as a patient. You know, left ventricular ejection fraction or yeah. EF. Well, we're we're just adding more alphabets to the soup, yeah. more letters to the soup. Let so. me add one more. <laughs> so our therapy, the Barostim device, Baro is pressure, stem stimulation. We stimulate the baroreceptors, so the pressure sensors that we all have in our carotid wall, so in the artery that's in the neck. The baroreflex activation therapy, BAT, is the modality we're using. It basically uses electricity to send signaling from the neck to the brain to lower the fight-or-flight mechanism and improve the rest and digest mechanism. So the fight or flight, you probably heard that before. That's our ability as humans to recruit more energy when we are trying to escape a danger. So we need to run faster. Our heart starts beating faster. The arteries constrict and the kidney starts retaining fluid. So now we have more pressure in our body to send more oxygenation to the muscles that need it. That's the fight or flight mechanism. The problem with heart failure patients is that their fight or flight mechanism is active all of the time, even when they're sleeping. So their body is not able to rest. So their heart is in a fight or flight mechanism all of the time over decades, and it pays at all. So the heart becomes larger and they end up developing heart failure. By using electricity, BAT, baroreflex activation therapy, basically lowers the sympathetic outflow, which is the fight or flight mechanism, and increase the rest and digest to restore that balance that is needed for all of us. How does it do it? Kind of like lighting a match under a thermostat to lower the temperature in your office. You know, the heat from the match will trick the AC. We're doing the same thing. We put electricity in the neck on top of those pressure sensors that we all humans have in the neck. We trigger those pressure sensors they send extra information to the brain. When the brain receives so much information about pressure going up and up and up, the natural reaction from the brain is to lower the fight or flight signaling called the sympathetic outflow and increase the dress or digest mechanism, which is called the parasympathetic or vagal outflow. So that's the restoration of the sympathovagal tone. So, a lot of words, a lot of you know, complicated scientific words, but bottom line is we lower the fight or flight mechanism, increase the rest and digest, and this is the best therapeutic targets that people have been trying over and over now for six or seven decades to create in heart failure patients to basically slow down the progression of the disease or stop it. Okay, and you know, what I get from this is that all the other technology we had just talked about a few minutes ago is directly in the heart. 
and you have to have implants either the lead or the actual device itself next to or into the heart. Uh, this does not sound like that. This sounds like you, you talked about in the neck. Um, so this has this is not impacting the heart directly and from a physical standpoint. Um, so one, just how how is is that differentiation meaningful, or is that just something that is just a different place? And then with the doctors, you know, how is the insertion process for the doctors um, similar or different um, compared to the uh, like the other devices? Yeah, uh, listen, uh, Matt, great question. So the differentiation, absolutely, uh, and you can look at it in, in in from two dimensions. One is the emotional differentiation for us. It is a cool technology. This is the first ever and only FDA-approved product that actually uses the brain to address a cardiovascular condition. We've all, you know, for 50 or 67 years now thought that the brain and the heart are well-connected and they work in unison, and some people will say it's the same organ. We are the only company that has an FDA-approved product that uses the brain to treat the heart, basically, right? So I'm, I'm oversimplifying, obviously, but that's the neuromodulation. We modulate the nervous system to address a cardiovascular condition, in our case, treat heart failure symptoms. So that's the emotional side of things. Now, from the physical side of things, uh, it's much safer not to put anything inside the arteries, inside the veins, or inside the hearts, you know? The heart has become a really expensive piece of real estate. Everybody wants to put something inside the heart. And there's so much you can take, you know, from pacemakers to ICDs, CRTs, valves, watchmen, you know, PFO, you know, you name it, right? Our device does not touch the heart at all. We are implanted outside of the arteries, outside of vein. It's in, under the skin. So it's still, uh, you know, procedure to put the device inside the body. But from an invasiveness under the skin, it's one of the least invasive ways of doing it because it's totally extravascular. Nothing in the artery, nothing in the vein, nothing in the heart. And from a surgical procedure, a vascular surgeon is recommended to do the procedure right now because our electrodes, so the tip of the wire that delivers electricity, is currently sutured on the outside of the carotid artery to ensure that the electricity goes to the baroreceptors, those stretch fibers that are located inside the wall of the carotid artery. Uh, It's about a one-hour procedure done under anesthesia. uh, And then, you know, once the device is in and sutured after the healing period of a couple of weeks, just for the skin incisions to heal in the chest and in the neck, patients can resume a totally normal life. They can shower, they can swim, they can do everything they need. That's that's fascinating. And so with the FDA approval, um, what was the clinical data that um, supported that approval? So we started the journey in heart failure in 2011. We did a first in man study in Italy, single arm, more about the safety. And then we did a randomized control trial as a phase two trial between the United States and Germany, a couple of patients from France, Italy, and Canada, but most of the patients came from the U.S. and Germany. That provided data that allowed us to get the CE mark approval for Europe and to allow us to design the pivotal trial, the phase three trial in the United States, which we started in 2016. We randomized 467 patients. Of those, 264 patients at six months constituted the first phase that we call the pre-market phase of that trial. That 
pre-market phase was unblinded in April of 2019. It showed that the device is safe and effective in improving symptoms such as quality of life and exercise capacity at six months. And that led us to getting or receiving the FDA approval under the PMA methods. So this is the hardest FDA approval. Uh, In August of 2019, it was a record time. I applaud FDA for doing this effort in three and a half months from the unblinding of the date of the trial to granting the PMA approval for this device. It's actually interesting because you you know you hear stories going both ways. Um, you know how the FDA can sometimes take twelve months and several back and forth, and but this for a PMA especially, three and a half months seems very efficient. Um, just kind of curious, what what what's your thoughts on why it was so efficient this time? Was it just the data was just that clean, or was there some other component that um, helped move the process along? Yeah, uh, of course, it helps that the data was phenomenally good. Uh, that simplifies a lot. So FDA does not have to, you know, dig deep into the data to understand what is going on. It was very simple, I would say. You know, looking at the data, I'd say yes, this is safe and effective. The benefits outweigh the risk from the FDA's perspective. But it goes beyond that. Uh, this trial was uh, designed under the breakthrough designation by FDA. And it was the first of its kind at the time. We innovated. We worked on the trial design of two-in-one pre-market, post-market with FDA uh, very interactively uh, with them. Uh, we had at one moment in time for six months weekly calls with FDA to design the trial together. So it has been a very collaborative effort. And along the way, anytime we have new information, we will make it a point to submit it to FDA and ask if they would need us to analyze or do something about it. So they were aware at every step of the way how the program is progressing, whether it's what we're doing in terms of patient education to enrollment, to what are we seeing in terms of difficulty of enrolling the trial or anything like this, FDA was with us. Even when we unblinded the data the first time in October 2018, we had, to my recollection, about eight meetings with FDA in a span of six weeks. Uh, maybe more than eight meetings, two of them face-to-face. So we have been working super, super closely with FDA. We did not follow the old saying to not ask FDA because you may get the answer you don't like. That advice was absolutely the wrong advice for our company. We have, since the beginning in this the, this program, we over-communicated with FDA. Some, you know, I would rather hear from FDA if they feel that there is a concern, I'd rather hear this two years ahead of time rather than two years after, if you know what I mean. Yeah, especially with all the investments you're making into these clinical trials, you want to make sure you're measuring twice and cutting once type of moment. Absolutely, absolutely. And listen, FDA has a lot of expertise in-house. They see hundreds Mm -hmm. of trials. We see one, maybe two in our life. Yeah. They see a lot. Mm -hmm. So it would be a shame not to leverage their expertise. Now, obviously, they cannot share with us the results of other trials, etc., but they accumulated so much knowledge inside the agency that we should listen to them. You know, ask the question. You, if you don't like the answer, fine, 
discuss it then, but at least ask the question. So we followed this this approach and it has helped us and we keep following it uh, as we go here. We're always to a pain point sometimes. We often over communicate to FDA and sometimes they will tell us, you know, we don't have to send us this every week. So I said, okay. <laughs> well, that's, that's interesting because then, you know, you've also recently reported the uh, beat HF data. And although that didn't, meet its endpoints, it did show some compelling data. So, you know, first, let, let's walk, can you walk through your, you know, thoughts of the trial results, um, what you've, with the takeaway, your key takeaways about it? And then, you know, how, what have you learned? Um, and then just, you know, how has that communication with the FDA kind of helped that process, um, especially when you kind of consider the totality of all the data? Uh, excellent question. So uh, the trial, as I mentioned earlier, the BEAT-HF trial, the 467 randomized patients continued in a post-market phase. So after getting the FDA approval, we kept enrolling additional patients and we kept following all of the patients until we unblinded the data in February of this year. In average, we had about 3.6 years of follow-up per patient. In this trial, some patients had more than seven years follow up. The trial was designed in 2015, and here we are in 2023 looking at the data. Right, a lot of things has happened since then. Uh, one of the interesting findings of this trial was that the observation of the number of patients who survived without an LVAD and without a heart transplant was very different between the arm. There were almost 34% observed difference between the patients who received our device versus the patients who did not receive our device. That is not a primary endpoint. You know, the LVAD and heart uh, transplant free survival or survival without an LVAD or heart transplant was not a pr the primary endpoint of the trial. I wish it was, but it was not. So we cannot yet say that this is an observed benefit. We can say this is an observed data point. Okay, but it's very compelling, right? It was If it was in the other direction, we would have been super concerned about, you know, maybe the device is hurting patients. It's in the positive direction. We cannot celebrate but we have to look at it and understand how do we make sense out of this data, right? Unfortunately, this data had an interesting side effect. With data like this, you end up having less sick patients in the control arm, those patients who did not receive a device because they end up either getting an LVAD or heart transplant or dying. So they may end up producing less heart failure hospitalization. Our endpoint, as we designed it in 2015, was the count of all of the hospitalization, death, LVAD, and heart transplant, and they all count the same. One death equal one LVAD equal one hospitalization equal one ER visit. Mm -hmm. You lowered, you, yeah, essentially you yeah. lowered the small, made the pool smaller for the uh, control group, and therefore there was less events because the pool was smaller. Potentially and differentially yeah. smaller, smaller in one arm more than the other, right? Yeah. So that's one of the examples of things that could have happened. The other, we talked about it as well, is an impact of COVID in 2020 on the uh, data collection and uh, how patients behaved. You know, some other trials showed that uh, there were much less hospitalizations during, you know, the height of COVID, where maybe because patients stayed home, they did not eat salty 
you know, burgers at McDonald's or didn't go to the bar, who knows what, yeah. right? There is so much things that we don't understand yet. Anyway, the, the, the side effect of all of this is to say, all right, the primary endpoint of the trial as designed, the flat addition of all of the death and hospitalization did not show a statistical significance to benefit the device arm. Mm-hmm. Therefore, the trial failed to meet the primary endpoint. That's the headline. Yeah. Now, if you stop at the headline, it's a bad trial. We should not stop at the he- headline and we should not throw the baby with the bathwater like we say yeah. here in the US, right? We should look deeper into the data. And when we uh, approach it from a pragmatic perspective, we look at the totality of evidence. And you hear that word often also coming from FDA that it's the totality of evidence that matter. Primary endpoint is super important, but we cannot ignore the rest of the evidence. From our perspective, we are blessed with our continuous discussions with FDA. Early in the trial, there was a new methodology that was developed outside of CVRX, obviously called the win ratio hierarchical composite. It's a hierarchical composite of death and morbidity accounted using a win ratio method, which is comparing all of the different pairs between the arm. It's a very complicated statistical method. We were not aware of that in 2015 when we designed the trial. FDA suggested it to us later. We add it as an additional analysis, not as a primary endpoint. You don't change the primary endpoint when you start trial, okay? So it was added as an additional endpoint. That one, the hierarchical composite, as we designed it prospectively, end up being statistically significant if it would have been the primary endpoint, but it's not. So we can say it is significant. P-value less than 0.04. We cannot say it's statistically significant because it's not the primary endpoint, right? So bottom line, you know, the same data, when you account for it differently or you calculate it differently, tells you two different stories. On one hand, flat addition of all of the events, we don't see a benefit. If you use a hierarchical, you see a benefit. But I'm not talking here about measuring blood pressure and going and finding some observation about diabetes. No, it's the same events, just the accounting of it. So that's why it was very important for us to have interactive discussions with FDA after the data was unblinded, make sure that we understand all of the questions that they may have, that we've run the analysis that they needed to see. We submitted all of this to them in early June. And now they have a clock of six months to look at the data and then come back to say whether we deserve to have an expansion of indication and what would that be. Okay. Yeah. Actually, that's, I was, you kind of for going with my thought process here, because I wanted to take a step back because it's FDA approved in 2019 and we're going through all this clinical data now and it, you know, with the, between the endpoints and between adding the hierarchy, um, which is, you know, once again, shows the benefit of having communication with the FDA. But why are we going through all this? What, 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 what are you trying to um, achieve with getting this clinical data and submitting it to the FDA that's additional to the current FDA approval? You know, when we got the FDA approval in 2019, it was based on safety and symptomatic improvement at six months. Mm-hmm. Patients and their families, payers would love to see how the device perform over longer than six months. So we have now 12-month data and 24-month data as part of PTHF. And by the way, the safety 
and the symptomatic efficacy at 12 and 24 months are phenomenal. So we're super happy with that. We believe, and our steering committee agrees with this uh, uh, belief that uh, the data from BTHF really suggests that the device is safe and on the long run, and that the symptomatic improvements are sustainable and durable up to 24 months, which is great, right? So that's one area what we would like to have the FDA's green light to allow us to say this to patients and to physicians. That's an expansion of labeling. The second expansion of labeling is now we're talking about improvement of symptoms. Would the FDA feel that we have now enough evidence to call our device a treatment for heart failure rather than a treatment of symptoms of heart failure? It's subtle, okay? Why does it matter? Maybe I'm reading too much here in the details. You know, maybe I'm too much into the weeds and the science. But I think that when a physician and a patient hears that it's a treatment for heart failure, they may be open to considering this therapy more often. You know, a physician who knows that this is a treatment for heart failure may be more open to consider more of his patients or her patients to be considered for this therapy. So that's the expansion of labeling that we're looking for. And, you know, we have to wait to see how FDA adjudicate this. Okay. But let's, let's kind of dive a little bit deeper into the, the adoption and, you know, the commercial launch since 2019. Have you seen physicians become more interested now that the data is out, now that they're seeing kind of the totality of the data the same way that um, the FDA is looking through it now? Um, have we seen some sort of inflection point um, following this data? If you allow me, I'm going to start with one statement. Uh, okay. As we ha- do not have yet the approval from FDA for this mm-hmm. data, and it's not yet published in a peer-reviewed journal, Okay. We cannot proactively share the data with physicians. We can only answer questions. Okay. All right. So any observation made and trying to correlate this back to the data would be based only on those few physicians who had the chance of seeing the data at a scientific or a medical meeting. Okay. Right. right. Uh, with this in mind, what we uh, were afraid of when we said on February 21st that we failed to meet the primary endpoint, we were afraid that some customers might slow down to mm-hmm. wait until they see the data, see what FDA thinks, what other peer reviewers, uh, you know, the editors of a journal would say, and so forth. So we were very concerned about this. The market was very concerned about this. And, and in fact, uh, we have observed the opposites. Uh, March was very strong, our revenue in March. Uh, and then in Q2, we did the exceptional uh, one-in-a-time uh, step to share almost on a monthly basis how the revenue is going because of that fear in the marketplace about what is the impact. We had a strong first month, strong second month, strong third month of the quarter. We end up with a very solid quarter. Uh, in uh, Q2, we just announced the results uh, a couple of weeks ago. So, so far, it's hard to look at the data and say it is a direct correlation with the announcement. So the revenue is, a, is, it's hard to say that the revenue increase is a direct correlation with the announcement of the results in February. But we're very happy with where we are right now. In the first half of this year, we've grown 
120%. So we more than doubled our U.S. heart failure business in the U.S. compared to the first six months of last year, everything else being equal. Yeah, and I mean, it's one of those things you can't proactively market the data, but the data is out there. It's at these, you know, the conferences and everything. And, you know, I, I, from my perspective, if I'm if I'm aware of the data, then the doctors have to be aware of the data as well as they're in the, you know they're in the thick of things. Um, so yeah, it's um, it's interesting that you know it's almost forgive me if I'm putting words in your mouth and f- correct me if I'm wrong, but it's almost free advertising that the doctors are able to see this on their own and kind of make their own conclusions in the process. Yeah, uh, they have to uh, mm-hmm. because we, you know, we cannot offer. You know, l- let me give you the audience here a flavor of what it means. If a physician asks me, "Does this device help my patient?" I cannot say that. I cannot say yes or no. Yeah, I can say that in the trial, what we have observed is the following. Patients with the device in the trial had these results as compared to patients who did not receive this device. I cannot talk about patients in general until FDA looks at the data and then they would allow us to generalize to the patients in the eligibility criteria that they allow us to. It's it's very regulated. Like it's very strict about what we can and cannot say. Yeah, and assuming you do get the label, once you do get that label, eventually that's that's you're untying one hand behind your back. That's huge. Yeah. yeah, then we can have a brochure where we tell physicians, listen, this device treats heart failure. For example, if that's mm-hmm. the labeling allowed, this device treats heart failure if your patients have an injection fraction less than thirty five percent, anti-proBNP below sixteen hundred, and so forth. Yeah, no, and so, you know, the other thing that, you know, you go with, you know, there's always the two prongs. There's the FDA and there's the CMS. And with any new technology, um, reimbursement sometimes can be a hurdle. Um, Just walk us through the path of where we are now with your reimbursement um, and kind of what are the next steps ahead? You probably have heard this term of valley of death where medical innovation dies after receiving FDA approval before getting reimbursement. We were super lucky uh, that with our therapy, we were able to navigate that in in a good way with Mm -hmm. the help of CMS, particularly, uh, particularly the coverage group of CMS, but also the payment and coding groups. We received a code early on uh, as a temporary code, of course, the 02660 for the procedure. We received a code for the device. We received a new technology add-on payment for inpatient procedures. And we received a transitional path-through add-on payment for outpatient procedures mm-hmm. early on. And the Medicare contractors now allows us to submit the claims and they adjudicate patient by patient. So that's how we're able to grow our business in the United States. We are super happy with this situation. Of course, we'd love it when you know some private payers will start covering our therapy. Right now, every patient's covered by a private insurer have to seek prior authorization. We have an inside team, internal team to CVRX, that's whole job is to support patients' requests. So if a patient has this situation, they will reach out to us. We'll help them submit all of the paperwork and everything for the prior auth and all of the documentation they need and so forth. From a payments perspective, I mentioned earlier we were blessed that CMS gave us this transitional path through. 
and it's maximum three years. So this expires mm-hmm. in this December. Okay. With the transitional path through, our hosp- you know, hospitals using our device to treat their patients were able to get adequately paid because mm-hmm. it's a new procedure, new device, more expensive than the other neurostimulation device for back pain or lesser diseases. Mm-hmm. There isn't any other neuromodulation device for heart failure or any cardiovascular disease. I mentioned we're the only one. Yeah. And therefore, with the cost of our device, we don't fit inside the different band of payments predefined by CMS for the neurostimulators. Yeah. You know, we're more expensive and more important, I would say, than a spinal cord stimulation for back pain or others, right? And the process for TPT is to allow hospitals to recoup their costs by having a pass-through of the cost of the device and allow CMS to collect the claim data during these years to understand how much does it cost to do this procedure in the hospitals. That has happened. And we are in the situation now where we are asking CMS to act on this data. And they have basically three options. Option number one, do nothing. This is our base case. If CMS decides that our volumes are too small to require any change right now, we stay with one of the neurostimulation payment band and hospitals will have to shrink their margin. We'll have to reduce or give rebates on our device. And that is our base case, that our ASP will drop to $25,000, $26,000 next year. That's the base case. The second case that we're submitting a request for is for CMS to say, okay, it's really more expensive to implant a barostem with the price of the device and the procedure. So we need to put it in another temporary area to collect more evidence until we have enough volume. There is a code that CMS uses called New Technology APC 1580 that reimburses $45,000. We're asking CMS to put us in this code. That code is not nominational. It's not for a specific modality. It's kind of a catch-all for all of the new procedures, new technologies that have this cost level at the hospital, right? Uh, We're waiting and we'll hear back from CMS early Uh, December or maybe late November when they'll announce their final uh, OPPS ruling. The last one is when we have enough volume, I believe that CMS should consider adding a level six neurostimulation payment band for products like ours, because there'll be other products, not specifically in heart failure, but could be for central sleep apnea or others that fit that same payment level where we deserve to have a band of payments specific for those devices that uses neurostimulation, but more expensive to implant than the current back pain stimulator. Okay. And so then if I did my math right, based off of the second quarter call, the average, the average ASP in that quarter was about 31,000. If one, I just, let me just start. I did my math correct there. Correct. Uh, yes. Yeah. Okay. And so, so going from 31 to 26, it's about a 15, 16% drop. If you, for option two and three, would it get you back to that 31,000? Would it say level? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So option three, I don't think is on the table for this year. It will be mm-hmm. for future year, but option two, we're asking for it. Okay. And so what, so that, that's something we would hear an announcement that they've gone one way or the other with that. 
sometime later this year. I'm thinking it probably, I mean, OPPS will probably have their finalized version sometime in November, correct? And so maybe mm -hmm. we'll hear something then about mm -hmm. an update. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, end of November, early December. And listen, Matt, so, okay, a 15% reduction in the price could be concerning. And we have been growing about 15 to 25% sequentially, quarter over quarter. I said 120% year over year, right? You yeah. can do the math. The growth is not going to slow down because of that. Yeah. But one quarter will have to reset. So if that sequential quarter growth was 15%, minus the 15% reduction in ASP, it will be a flat quarter and then the, the growth would resume. However, we will provide investors and we have been providing in the past, the revenue units, the number of revenue units sold. So yeah. that will give people the comfort that the business is still growing at that rate. It's just that the curve has shifted out by one quarter. So instead of being X million dollar in Q2, we'll get to that X million dollar by Q3 that year. That's kind of... Uh, Big picture in here, what could have ha what could happen in the worst case scenario, which is our base case. And that has been factored in the estimate I've seen from some of the Wall Street analysts who are covering our stock. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> and you know, when you're when you're doubling your volume year over year, you know, one hundred percent increase minus a fifteen percent price reduction in the bear case scenario, you're still getting at, you know, growth in the eighty percent, assuming you're doing that same volume growth. And talking about like the adoptions that we're seeing from doctors and picking up all that stuff. So, yeah, there's one more thing, Matt, as well. Mm -hmm. The TPT is not well understood by hospitals because they don't see it often. Mm -hmm. So the explanation of TPT and trying to, you know, for our sales rep to convince an administration to sign up to a program with TPT, unknowing how much they will get reimbursement, will be resolved next year. So the flip side of it could be a simplification of the process that could maybe help us grow faster, right? So it's it's not everything being equal that would just drop the price and everything stay the same. So there are some nice side benefits where we may be able to grow faster if there is a clarification here on the yeah. coding. All right. And so the other thing too, I just want to see in for the 55, going back to that 55,000 patient incident rate, my, my thought is that the majority of them would be over 65 and would qualify for Medicare. Is that is that the right uh, assumption to make? Yeah, for above 65, usually Medicare. Some of them would sign up to a Medicare Advantage program, mm -hmm. a Medicare Advantage plan, MAP. Okay. Uh, so it's a Medicare, but managed by a private payer. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, it's about 50-50 of Medicare, Medicare patients right now between Medicare Advantage and traditional Medicare. I gotcha. Okay. All right. Um, and so, yeah, we'll see that data c coming up next. Um, so, I mean, yeah, it seems like between the FDA approval and between the um, reimbursement updates, there, there, there's potentially a lot of excitement coming up for the, uh, the end of the year. Um, one other thing just I want to cover before we end this call is just, you know, with the reimbursement rate potential options or the uh, pathways it could go, um, how does that affect uh, the financials in the long run and maybe with cash flow break even? Um, does that change your schedule in any way? Uh, it does not because we have taken that into account. I mentioned earlier that the worst case scenario is our base case. Mm -hmm. And we've raised money at the IPO to allow us to get to a cash flow break even point in time. 
Okay. Uh, we have not disclosed when that would happen. Okay. Uh, or what what would it take in terms of revenue for this to happen? Mm-hmm. But we've raised enough money to get there without needing to raise any more. On top of that, we uh, we had a debt facility. We still have thirty five million dollars of debt that we can draw down at the right time if we need to. So right now we have ninety one million dollars in the bank, and then you add the thirty five additional mm-hmm. million that we can draw as debt. So w- w- I would say we have a few quarters ahead of us here of runway. Okay. And so, yeah, and basically uh, enough cash to enjoy the exciting second half of the year. Yeah. Well, Nadim, thank you so much for joining us. This was a great conversation. I look forward to uh, talking with you sometime next year to see get how all these updates have uh, played out over time. Um, so, yeah, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Matt. I appreciate it. To all our listeners, thank you for uh, joining in and uh, tune in for our next podcast episodes as they, uh, they come on. Uh, thank you very much. in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for the Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash Radio.